Welcome to the Catholic Reading Challenge. I'm Mike. And I'm Jess. And the only thing we like better than reading is talking about what we are reading with friends. In 2019, we are reading through a new category each month. So listen in and read along. And remember, as Mortimer J. Adler said, in the case of good books, the point is not to see how many of them you can get through, but rather how many can get through. Hey. Hi there, everybody. Now, this is our second take because we just tried to do one and our kid woke up. But yeah. he, he's uh, laying in bed. He's not asleep, but he is back in bed. Welcome to the Catholic Reading Challenge. Yeah. We are at the end of summer here. Summer's starting to wind down. Weather's starting to sort of change a little bit. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm getting excited. I'm much more of a fall person than a summer person. Now, I used to be a summer person. Now, I love the fall and I'm excited too. It's been It's been a good summer. But I've been in the classroom now for about two weeks. It's been great. Killing it. Yeah. Killing so, it. So have I. About uh, We're actually starting, gosh, this is our fourth week of homeschooling. Yeah, you're rocking it out. Ty was talking to me this uh, today at dinner about Pilgrim's Progress. I know. We are slowly, well, he is reading it aloud to me, like in 10-minute segments. And, and it, so we're getting about a page done. Well, you know, it was super special, too. You told me this. It's the Pilgrim's Progress that your mother gave me when we were engaged. And there's a note in the front that says, one day you can read this to your kids because it was formational in Jessica's upbringing. That's really cool. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. And I had forgotten that she gave that to you and that yeah. was even there. I didn't even know where this copy of the book was i actually had bought another paperback which i'm of pilgrim progress which i'm going to try to return on amazon now that um we have that the nice hardback with the beautiful inscription so your mom actually gave me really good books she gave me that she gave me um i don't know if it's the complete works of henry james but it's it's like a collection and this is the best one she gave me she gave me uh marshall McLuhan's the medium and the message does that sound right uh understanding media Ah, but that's No, but had that idea, yeah. media and the message, which is really was, is one of the most formal. Yeah. I talk about that all the time. Yeah, yeah. I talk yeah. about all that, especially when I'm when, when I'm critiquing like church mediums and liturgical oh. mediums. And, yeah, but was, so that was really a blessing for your for your your mom to do that. And you know what? That's a good idea for you parents out there and you grandparents out yeah. there. That could be like a cool legacy thing. And uh, um, yeah, that's Kids, that's really cool. I think love discovering that. When a kid discovers that they're reading a book that you read when you were a kid, for some reason that it's that timelessness about books yeah. that is very special and sort of resonates in kids' hearts. They understand that a book is like this dear old friend that's generational and passed down through time, and especially if it's an author who lived a long time ago. They understand it as this living thing that's been mm-hmm. transmitted and in the context of relationships, and it, that can be a really, um, I think Sarah McKenzie talks about this on the Read Aloud Revival all the time. Like the, I thought you were going to say Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> no. I will remember you. I'm but sorry. like this idea that it, you're con- you're creating this family culture and this culture, like this yeah. connection with your kids over books. Yeah, I, I think so. We try to do that here. I don't, you know, we don't try to do that. When I say we try to do that here, we actually like, this is the way it should work. Right. And I think this is the way it should work with education and everything. And a lot of people get this wrong. You don't try to create a culture of books in your family because it's a good thing to do. Yeah. You you do it because you actually like to read books. Right. And you find it life-giving. And it's not like this functional utilitarian thing, right? 
And we do that with so many things, especially like in faith and spirituality. Like, oh, this is a good thing to do because this will make you a good person. Um, we do it out of like obligation. Yeah, like you read we it because it'll be the be, kind of it like that better do. you. Yeah, it's like a TED talk or something, right? Or just because, like, to be part of this scene, we're supposed to do this rather than it coming out of an authentic place, which I suppose is well, fine to begin with. If you're not, you know, if, if if you're learning something that's not been part of your well, it's before. funny though because you this has happened to us recently. We've had some couples over to our house, and we've been asked this a few times. And I, I'm not throwing anyone under the bus or anything. I just think it's kind of a funny dynamic. I've, I've had a few funny dynamics recently, but people <laughs> will go like, "Well, how do you guys?" find time to read. And, and a oh, lot of right. times the people who do that just don't read books. So it's one of these deals where, well, if you enjoy reading, um, and I don't want to say they don't enjoy it at all, but if it's like reading's really a priority for you, then you'll figure out how to just kind of sneak it in. Like you say, like lead measures or something like that. Yeah. But like reading books, um, I think kids, kids, you can't really pass it on to your kids if they just think it's this functional like betterment of how to become a successful person. Right. Um, that you actually, you you have to really love it. Love reading books. Well, you you enjoy sitting and reading for the pleasure that it brings. And, and, and different books bring different different kinds of pleasures. But, but yeah, all, I mean, ultimately, it's not something that you do because... You're know, supposed you're, to. Or, or checking some box that someone else created. I mean, it's... Well, you'll never be. communicate like a true passion to your kid if, if that's mm-hmm. if that's the case. That'll, that'll never, it'll always seem like forced and it just, it won't work. As a teacher, if I go in there and I don't love the ideas that I'm telling to these kids, um, it won't, it won't work. Yeah. No. And, uh, actually it's funny. Uh, when I was stacking the kids in bed tonight, I told them, I was like, okay, y'all be quiet. We're going to record some podcasts, (laughs) a podcast tonight. Um, and Ty says, when can I be on the we should have him on. I he said, well, great. that might be good. Would you like to be interviewed would be about really, the books that you like? He would like? be really good. They would be, you would like our kids more than us. They're, they've got like big time personalities. Well, plus they would be talking about um, a lot of picture books and children's literature, which are the best. So Yeah. Well, it's good. So, yeah, summer's, summer's winding up. Um, fall is coming soon. We're in September, which is a great month. I love, I love September and October. I like late September, October, and early November. That's probably my favorite favorite chunk of the year, but we um, are here to talk about books of poetry. Yes, and actually on the like theme of reading with your kids and, and family and poetry and all those things intersecting, um, this term in school, we the boys both are reading, the poet for this term for both of them is A.A. A. Milne, the author of The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Oh. Um, and he wrote Finn. Fantastic, I didn't know he wrote poetry. Uh, fantastic children's poetry. Very cool. Um, Is he English? Yes. Okay. So I would um, totally recommend them. They're lovely, small, thin hardcover volumes, and Amazon has them. You can find them used. But uh, when we were very young, and now we are six, both of those volumes is just uh, And sometimes, like, the characters in the poems are, like, Christopher Robin or Winnie the Pooh, but the poetry is not necessarily particular to the Winnie the Pooh stories. Yeah. They're just delightful and kids love them. They're, they're just so, they're such fun. Um, we have so many favorites in there. So I don't know. That's a, that's a segue point. Get, definitely get those if you don't have them. You'll love them. Your kids will love them. They'll just be instant family favorites. Yeah. We're a big Winnie the Pooh family. Winnie the Pooh always makes me kind of sad though, because it has to deal with, um, kind of fleeting childhood. 
Mm-hmm. And as a parent, you deal with that enough on your own with your kids that like, you're probably better at this than I am. But like those really like precious moments that are there. Yeah. They're, they're kind of bittersweet because at the same time you're like, Oh, they're that, that's like this childhood innocent moment. And um, one day they're going to be adults. But maybe I should just live in the moment more. But Winnie the Pooh always reminds me of that. Like, you know, it's interesting. Christopher Robin's not in the Hundred Acre Woods anymore. It's interesting that you say that because I'll just throw this out out there. I just read recently that um, I don't know if he was an atheist, but I think he had kind of a who the yeah. What's his name? A. A. Milne. A. A. Milne. Um. There's a there's I a little sadness both, yeah. right on the surface. Uh huh. I believe, um, you know, I yeah, I don't know what level of atheism or agnosticism he had, but something something along those lines. I haven't read it myself. I just remember mm. reading this recently. So, um, there's a lot of joyful things in that, but I think that you might be picking up on something. I'm well, not going to say that there's not something, um, mournful about you know adulthood if they're. If that's what, it. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I'm reading another book on Catholic mindfulness. And I, I, the author is – um, he's a Catholic psychologist out of New York. Greg, I can't think of his name right now. But if you if you go on Amazon you type in Catholic mindfulness, it's the only book that pops up. It's really, really good. And in this one part he's talking about – and this connects to what we were, we were talking about Winnie the Pooh. That um, he, he talks about like how when you're going through a situation – you still have you still have freedom. You can still kind of transcend the situation. You like yeah. you almost bracket and you kind of look at it. He said, however, if you're someone who has this modern secular view, like you're a materialist, then you can't separate. You don't have this um, anthropology of the human person that takes in the soul and the consideration, the spiritual element of the, okay. of the human person. So when you're going through situations, there's a lot less. Uh, you, you, there's not an aspect of you that is like other in the situation that is eternal and that, and that can be free in the midst of whatever you're dealing with physically. It's like this interesting component. And, you know, for me, and I, and I, I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way. Um, I don't it, like without the infinite, without the eternal, without redemption, hope is kind of uh, fleeting or like what you were talking about earlier, you, you manufacture hope as like a function Rather than an end in itself, where yeah. it's like, well, you need hope to live, so it's good. It, it's like it's it's the comparison between theistic existentialism and an atheistic existentialism. Yeah, where like the atheist existentialist will say, well, I create meaning to my life, but at the same time, you always know that you created that. Yeah, where the theistic existentialist, even if you think the person is naive, the belief is no, th- there really is a meaning. There really is a way to be human, and I'm and I'm moving towards that. And even these situations that seem overwhelming, and even these situations that seem bad, there's still there's still this move towards hope. In the end, it's all going to be okay, um, as the backdrop. And I think that does affect the way people write, um, and 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 it does affect the the uh, the art that they create. Oh, undoubtedly, I think um, we might see that in the poems that we. Yeah, talking about that's a good today. segue. Go for it. Um, okay, so yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll go. So I, um, as I told everyone in the last episode of our podcast, um, don't approach this poetry. I don't think you should approach this poetry, you know, this poetry book for this month is like, oh, I need to get through the whole book because that's this is a different category than reading a novel. I mean, we should never be so hard on ourselves. We're like, oh, I didn't get up through mm-hmm. the stack of books in a month. Did but, you read the whole thing? Uh, no, I'm still working on it. Okay. I have a few pages. I mean, but it'll just kind of go in my, it'll be my 
poetry reading. Yeah, you know, and a my po- day, like my a day book's kind of good to have like that. Oh yeah, I keep a, a book of poetry going. Some would at call all it times. bathroom reading. <laughs> Uh, I would not. You could put a poetry book on the one could. I um, next to the extra roll. Yeah. I'm just saying, no judgment. That's, yeah. Get in if you're wondering. If people go, how can you get reading? <laughs> there you go. There you go, Mike's. That's Mike's. Uh, if you want to ask Mike, I like to read. Ten, no, ten that's, reading that's tips. My, that's my reading. fortress of solitude. <laughs> the only one left. Somehow, I have. Somehow we're just gonna get off the rabbit trail, but somehow. Moms. The little zombie fingers come under the door. Sometimes the kids find you in there. Oh, they yes. Moms don't seem to find the bathroom as the what did you how did you just describe it? A well, no, but I mean I can only do it if someone else is in the house. Exactly. All right. Um, anywho, so I'm I'll be finishing up this volume, but I read the Brontes selected poems. So this is um, four Bronte siblings: Charlotte and Emily. We know the most authors of Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. And I think I made a mistake on the last podcast when I said Shirley was Anne Bronte. That's actually um, Charlotte as well. But Anne is also the third sister. And their brother Branwell, he's actually Patrick Branwell, but went by Branwell, which is his mom's maiden name. And so the four of them uh, have, their, it's the four of their poetry in this um, nice little collection here, actually, by, I'll tell you, the author, Juliet uh, Barker is the one who edited it and wrote a nice little introduction in the beginning that provides fantastic brief history of them. Um, there were actually six children, two older sisters than Charlotte. Charlotte was the oldest, I believe, of the other, of the um, remaining four that lived. The two older sisters died of consumption, I believe it was, in like gr- their grammar years. Um, the family, I, I, I want to give this background because I think that it really provides a backdrop for this poetry. Um, the family had just lived through a great deal of tragedy. Um, the, their mother died when they were very young. I don't think it was one of the childbirth, but she died. They all had ill constitutions, all the children. Perhaps it was from her that they mm-hmm. got them, but she died early on. Then the two eldest daughters passed. And like I said, I think it was from consumption. And then for various other health-related reasons, just ill constitutions, um, I can't remember if it's Emily or Anne who passed next. I and mean, this is the the four went to adulthood. They all, you know, had jobs as governesses or Pat Branwell had various jobs. Their father was a um, – their father was a pastor and – or a vicar. And so he had his parsonage, but, I mean, he would – he had no they, – they had no inheritance. Mm-hmm. I mean, he lived off of what he had. So they had to make their own ways in the world, and so they all tried their hand at writing um, novels, obviously, as we know, but also all four of them poetry. Um, of the four, the, in, in the introduction, this editor, you know, says pretty um, convincingly that, you know, Emily and Branwell are the ones who have been taken to be the best of the four. Really great poets, actually. The the two of them were really considered to be quite remarkable poets in their own right. And I have to say, after reading all four of their poetry, I would definitely agree with her. Um, I mean, they all four had talent, but Emily and Branwell's poetry, particularly even Branwell, it was um, quite amazing. And Anne's poetry tends to have a lot of um, a theology or just... Ref- reflection spiritual reflection in it 
Um, but anyway, to just sum up about the family life, the father outlived them all. He died about 80 or Jeez. so. And he, yeah, he outlived all of his children and his wife. Um, Charlotte was the last one to die. And she actually, it was briefly after she had married finally. I think she'd gotten a few offers. But the person she had, she was the, at, when she had married, her other siblings had all passed. And I believe she died during her first pregnancy. It was very rough on her. So, um, I can't, you can't read their poetry without the backdrop of the family tragedy mm-hmm. because a lot of it, um, I mean, when you know that, you understand the verse, the verses that they, um, that they have put down here. So I found I, it's, and it's, it's really great poetry. Um, it's funny. I won't say the, the poetry I like the least. I just think the poetry that is, Charlotte's poetry is very um, technical, like technically correct, but I think maybe she was too mechanical. It didn't quite come a lot. It didn't have the just the vivid metaphors and artistic way with verse um, that Branwell and Emily did. But I mean, they were all quite good at it. Um, should I read one? Please. Okay, I'm going to read this one by... I think I posted one by Branwell. Yeah, that one was awesome. Read that one. Okay, on um, on the Instagram account. It's I called, read that to all my classes. Oh, did you? Did mm-hmm. they like it? They did. It's funny, though, before, yeah. <laughs> before you read it. I think this is one of these poems I found incredibly hopeful. Like, I read it, and it made me hopeful. Mm-hmm. But other people read it, and it oh, made yeah. them sad. Oh, yeah. They which, am, am I... But you know me. Like, okay, read it and you'll see what I mean. Yeah. Okay, here we go. On peaceful death and painful life. Why dost thou sorrow for the happy dead? For if their life be lost, their toils are o'er. And woe and want can trouble them no more. Nor ever slept they in an earthly bed. So sound as now they sleep while dreamless laid in the dark chambers of the unknown shore, where night and silence guard each sealed door. So turn from such as these thy drooping head, and mourn the dead alive whose spirit flies, whose life departs before his death has come, who knows no heaven beneath life's gloomy skies, who sees no hope to brighten up that gloom. Tis he who feels the warm, the worm that never dies, the real death and darkness of the tomb. Okay. Yeah. So when I hear that, yeah. I think of some of the lines maybe when you read Julius Caesar by Shakespeare where Caesar says, you know, the coward, I'm paraphrasing, tastes death many a time, yeah. you know, while the brave taste death but once. And this idea of like, well, don't mourn for those who are who are dead, who are now in peace. Mourn for those who are alive and they live like they're dead. And am I am I wrong in that? Oh, not at all. And let that? me say, of the four of them, his is maybe the saddest story because he dealt with some um, alcohol and opiate addictions. Wow! And as well as having the ill constitution, and I believe he died rather suddenly because of it. I mean, just you know what those things this do is to Brandwell. your health. Mm-hmm. Those things do to your health, and so um, I think that his physical demise was rather sudden. Yeah. Um, and so he was maybe one of these people who had the painful life he speaks of here. Um, and he's watched um, perhaps siblings and a parent who may li- have lived a more peaceful life pass on before him. And 
there is a piece, there has been a piece in those loved ones' death that he has not experienced in his own life. So I feel that this is a poem that speaks of something he understands yeah. and something he wants to possibly, well, not possibly, something he would love, like to overcome, a, a way that he does not want to live and be. Um, but I think it's, he speaks, I mean, the skill of this verse is definitely rooted in its authenticity. It comes out. Yeah, you read it. I mean, I don't know when he wrote that, but I read it to yeah. 17 and 18-year-olds in the year 2019 this yep. past week, and they found it gripping, yeah. and it, but it impacted them in, in different in different ways. I'm going to read another one by Anne. Okay? okay. So this is the one who tends to see, um, tends to be more spiritually reflective, but I've picked another downer, some may say. Uh, this one's called Despondency. I have gone backward in the work. The labor has not sped. Drowsy and dark my spirit lies, heavy and dull as lead. How can I rouse my sinking soul from such a lethargy? How can I break these iron chains and set my spirit free? There have been times when I have mourned in anguish o'er the past and raised my my suppliant hands on high while tears fell thick and fast and prayed to have my sins forgiven with such a fervent zeal an earnest grief, a strong desire, as now I cannot feel. And vowed to trample on my sins and called on heaven to aid, my spirit in her firm resolves and hear the vows I made. And I have felt so full of love, so strong in spirit then, as if my heart would never cool or wander back again. And yet, alas, how many times my feet have gone astray. How oft have I forgot my God, how greatly fallen away. My sins increase, my love grows cold, and hope within me dies. Even faith itself is wavering now. Oh, how shall I arise? I cannot weep, I cannot pray. Then let me not despair. Lord Jesus, save me lest I die, and hear a wretch's prayer. Wow. Yeah, your book is, I don't want to say better than mine, but... um... (laughs) I thought those two poems were better than any of the poems I read. And that, yeah, I'm not trying to, I'm just, just thinking because the, I've only, the only poem I read from the book was the first one, but that one is just, is awesome as well. Oh, it's awesome. And it's just yeah. chock full of, of oh, substance and, yeah. and, and life. And it has, it has a firm foundation that they're, that they're proclaiming from. Let me add one more thing before we move to yours. Yeah. A lot of these poems were created uh, the ideas in them, I should say, from these imaginary worlds that they, the four of them created as children um, out on the moors and in the fields. And they actually had built these imaginary kingdoms that I, make me think of like Lewis and Tolkien. Yeah. Um, and they actually adapted them and edited them a little bit when they submitted them for publication because they were so um, esoteric to themselves because they, they were about these made up worlds that they had imagined with each other. Um, So, but I find that really beautiful. So some of them are kind of edited a little bit, but you see these references to these imaginary worlds. I just think that's so interesting that it really speaks to the play in childhood that is so important to the Mm -hmm. imagination. That these worlds that our children create in their youth when they have the time to to let things be birthed in the imagination. They create these worlds that are just 
fit for the language of poetry and, and not, and not, um, not anything else. There's just this, um, this beauty, um, that they discover. And so I think it's something we don't want to kill and we don't want to starve and we want to no. make room for. No, I, I think that's a big deal. And I talk to my students about this. I talk to my seniors about it. I, I'll, I'll be honest. I am a teacher who does not like, um, most schools. And I, the fact that a kid sits in a desk for six hours a day and then he has three hours of homework a night, I, I find it soul crushing. Right. And it prepares them for preparation, or excuse me, it prepares them for participation in an economic system. And it does not, it does not um, emphasize their humanity. It doesn't bring them closer to God. It doesn't bring them closer to, to beautiful things. It's just this functional existence. Right. And that's the thing I think about poetry. It, it dismantles that and it confronts that because poetry by its nature is not is not a functional thing it's not a self-help book and well, that's why yeah. i think it's such an incredibly valuable thing and, and when i watch our kids today nothing makes me happier than after dinner when they're in the backyard and they're digging in the dirt and sammy has his shirt off and he's created this whole world and walker was out there today using this pipe as a, a camera making a movie and do that as long as you can. And honestly, I, I don't think that's a childhood thing. No. Um, I think that's a human thing. And when we are the most alive is when we were at when we're at, at play. play. Yeah. And I, I play is a serious thing. Yeah. And I that's something that I really try to emphasize when I teach and I try to model as a person. Um, because ultimately, I, I hope I'm not I'm not running with this, but when you think about when I was growing up, I mean, I, I'm thankful for the, the Christian tradition that I was brought up in in a lot of ways. But I think one way that they got it really wrong is when they kind of use this language. If you if you grew up charismatic and you went and you went to an altar call and someone right. would do like a prophetic prayer over you, and they're like, "God has a plan. He needs you for this thing. You're very important." Right. Okay, that might be true, but God doesn't need you, and God's relationship with you isn't based on you fulfilling some type of job. God created you out of an overflowing, abundant Trinitarian love. Yeah. Yeah. And so the goal of the Christian life and the reason that you're created is to receive that love for all eternity. That seems a lot more like play to me than it does um, some task oriented thing. And it, the poetry yeah. is, is in music is the voice of God. It's the, it's the voice of, of, of the angels in, in my mind. And, and I think you, you see that reflected in, in beautiful poetry and, and that, that you were reading. And um, it just, it it's makes us more human and makes us more divine. Yeah. And as you were talking about this lacking in education, I mean, in education, we've had such a, a focus on technology and STEM and we've, um, we've it. completely taken out um, I mean, poetry is something that's non-existent, especially in um, in early elementary school. I mean, it, 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 what we've done is, I mean, we've taken out all the things that I think can form an individual in the most important ways. Um, just think of like how it's actually not unusual. It's quite unusual to us today that four siblings from the same family all wrote Mm-hmm. well-crafted poetry and two of them were phenomenal poets to us that's like what are the odds well it the odds are not are good when that's normal in the education and childhood you know their dad read to them they 
they were brought up as that, as, you know, with beauty, beauty first, you know, the really the beautiful, important things. And, um, I think we're just getting that wrong. We, the fact that that is such an unusual thing to us today shows where, where we have some, some really serious voids. Yeah. Big time. You're right. Um, I totally agree. Well, we got a little time left. I only need a little time. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's, I'm not. It was it was Wendell Berry. I really appreciate Wendell Berry. I and I've I've read some of his novels, and I think he is a an incredible talent. I think he has a lot to offer. Um, so I hopefully this doesn't sound like I'm disparaging Wendell Berry. Well, but, do you enjoy his? Which did you enjoy more, his fiction or his poetry? Well, this is the only book I've read of his poetry, okay. and and to make kind of give you an understanding of what it is, a small porch. This is Sabbath poems. So, like, on the Sabbath, he takes the Sabbath seriously, and he would go walking. Yeah. Most of these poems are him walking um, in the woods where he lives, which I believe is is Kentucky. I think he's in rural I th- Kentucky. I think that's right. So, it's just him. And, and so, it has that kind of nature to them. Okay. I, I, I don't – this is – if I were to walk around in journal, and, and I think that's what you're you're supposed to take it as, I, I to, to, like – Expect more from it would be incorrect. So there's a beauty to it, and it's it's really good. Um, and there's some things that I really took away from it. One of the main things I took away from it, and also when you read Tolkien, this is a, a theme, and I, I'm constantly reading Tolkien. I'm a kid who grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is right on the D.C. city line. So in a yeah. fairly like urban, suburban upbringing with not – I didn't do Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts or anything like that. My, my exposure to the outdoors, though, is in the summertime I would go to Arizona – and anyone who spent time in the Southwest, if you're vacationing, you're you're. It'll be crazy if you don't try to encounter some of the epic scale of nature out there. So that was really my only interaction with it. And in college, when I was at University of Arizona in Tucson, um, you know, going up to the the different trails and things like that, and it, it made a big impact on me during that period of my life. One thing I really struggle with with raising my family in Bowie, Maryland, is that it's suburbia and you know, you've got trees and stuff in a backyard, but it's not like Wendell Berry who is walking out his front porch and there's acres and acres and acres and acres. Sure, of we don't live in the country, right? And he can just, and to me, I mean, Tolkien talks about that a lot, about this idea of proximity to nature and how that's really how we are, we are created and removal of from that removes us from aspects of our humanity. So, and when that's something Wendell Berry talks about a lot in his essays. That's a theme in his novel, place and the importance of place and the loss of place, um, and also kind of this this criticism of modern consumerism and the consumption that it has of nature. And you know, Tolkien, if you if you read the Lord of the Rings, when the orcs are destroying the trees, yeah, yeah. It, it's a thing that he saw, and I think it's a criticism of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, going back to what we were talking about, so criticizing the Industrial Revolution, I, I hate to break it to you folks, but our educational system looks a lot like the Industrial Revolution. Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. We're just preparing people to be factory workers. No, that is the model. And so, yeah. like, if all you're saying is STEM and innovation and something like that, you're you're, you're preparing people to be factory workers and really well paid factories. Okay, right. You might not be working in a in a steel mill outside of Pittsburgh or in a in a wool mill in Manchester, England or something like that, but you're working in a tech startup eighty hours a week in Northern California. But it doesn't matter. It's still this like this kind of removal of the human person from from what I think is is their more 
intended environment. Well, we're unable to address the formation of the soul in the education process. Yeah, and and something I really do struggle with. I go, okay, do I want to be somewhere where I'm either where my kids have that type of access, where they walk outside and they can walk and they can play in the woods, or it's close enough that you can escape to it in ten to fifteen minutes. I mean, this is something we yeah, talk about, which we which we do have here. I will say that we have a lot. We have access, not, not like to a point, not yeah, like yes. not like Wendell Berry is doing. Well, here. no, no. So let me find a poem that kind of reflects that. I took pictures. Jessica has her little, what are those things called? Book, Book darts, darts. Which I yeah. wish I, I had. Instead, I was taking, I took my phone out. <laughs> that, took, works. Yeah, that works, Yeah, I took too. pictures of the individual Actually, poems. you probably be one of these people. I keep a print, you know, a commonplace notebook that I write in. But I know people who basically do that with Evernote. And I know yeah. you love Evernote. Yeah, I, I do like Evernote. It's it's good. It's good. So they would be right there. But I'm trying you. to I'm trying to get out. I'm trying to get away from the the big. The, I'm trying to rage against the machine. I'm trying to get away from the the big, the the technical everything. Here we go. Let me read this poem. Okay. Sorry, my phone just beeped. I thought I had it turned off. That was Wendell Berry, folks, <laughs> giving me the thumbs up for. Um, well, actually, it's ironic that I'm trying to have. I have my computer open and I have a Mac computer because I'm using GarageBand. Right. And if you have a Mac, one thing that's nice is that the iMessage is everywhere. But one thing that's absolutely terrible is that the iMessage is everywhere. So yes. this is Wendell Berry on the Sabbath would not approve of this. Yeah. So this is kind of prophetic. The woods is completed in beauty. Leaf shadows on light leaves moving with the motions of the air. So is the lowly pasture completed in beauty. The bergamot, the milkweed declaring themselves in season among the ripened grass stems, the grass blades, the blossoming clovers. But are these beautiful because we think them so, or because they are beautiful in the mind of nature or in the mind of God? Beautiful by intention and born in a world beloved? Beauty is the crisis of our knowing, the signature of love indwelling in all created things, called from nothing by love, recognized and answered by love in the human heart, not reducible by any analysis to any fact. The sufficient fact is unavailable. The creatures came, as love imagines, answering the loneliness of God, who needed them for company, as we in our loneliness have needed them. This is beautiful. Yeah, that speaks to what you were just talking about, about love, you know, the love of the Trinity. Yeah, right? I mean, exactly. This That we were created to, Out of love, yeah. to receive love. Uh, creatures came as love imagines, answering the loneliness of God who needed them for company. I think that is the thing about, I mean, you talk about poems that um, either reflect on nature, depict it, or use it as metaphor. Um, you know, the more that I'm outdoors with the kids and take in nature and natural beauty, the you, I mean, you, the closer you get to God. Because you're taking in the world he created and you're, you can't miss, if you're looking, you can't miss his design, even in the smallest, like he talks about bergamot and milkweed. When I was at at U of A in Tucson, there was this place on Mount Lemmon that I could drive to in about 45 minutes from the campus. And when I went there, I would hike about 15 minutes through the woods to the other side of the mountain. And I would sit on this, this uh, opening and this rock formation. And as far as I could see, I mean, there would be nothing, no people. And it was incredibly cathartic. It did something to me. There was like a recentering that would take place. And I could just sit there for hours and hours and hours. And I always felt this incredible proximity and closeness to God while that was happening. Yeah. Here's another kind of Wendell Berry-esque poem. And then I'll just read one more and then we'll, we'll wrap it up because we're at about 35 minutes and 
Uh, but this has been really cool. This has been a fun one. Yeah. When the ground is safely kept, when the scale is right, and when the resident human mind is righted by memory, affection, neighborly kindness and care, the giving hands to work, all lives of woodland and pasture live by the economy of gifts, the only economy that will last. To be in one's right mind is to know the right use of gifts. To ask for more than is given, to take more than is given back, is to have less and finally nothing. This is not because of any human wish. It follows the law of nature, mother of all creatures, maker and giver of the native patterns by which our world in changing last and dying lives. So this this idea those are of good you picked good ones yeah those are good and there's one more I, I just, those two are good that I'm going to read um, but it, it's funny during the same time I was reading a book called All the Things That Remain and it's written by a minimalist yeah and I mean what Wendell Berry's saying there this idea of this kind of consumerism does not make you happy no um, right the, the consumption of something more even land doesn't lead to life um, it, it leads to something else. So back on kind of like this, the, uh, ripping on on just STEM only education is <laughs> STEM is if you just focus on it's not a moral education, right? It's it's a skill based education and it's morally neutral and it's innovation for the sake of innovation, and you're not ultimately asking like okay what is it all about? And I can tell you right now, despair is is not on short supply. Yeah. And I I sit in front of a group of eighteen year old eighteen year olds. They sit in front of me. I'm the teacher. Um, every day, and and what I try to do is inject them with the hope of the gospel, because what the world is offering is not hopeful, and it doesn't lead to redemption, and it's not life giving, and that's why poetry is such an important thing. And I think especially poetry, both of the poems that we we read the, have a redemptive view. Yes, even in the face of a calamity, a tragedy. Um, yes, yeah. This is with the. Um, is the the Bronte the, the Brontes the Brontes yeah. is this personal tragedy, and what 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 Wendell Berry's talking about is this kind of the tragedy of of how we treat um, nature and 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 how we need to interact with it, how we need to interact with others. It's it's in the, the minimalist book was, was this this idea that like okay, more is not always good. Actually, it weighs us down and. Um, so it was, it was great to read these this month, and I hope I hope your poems and yeah, I hope all of you listening got um, got a lot out of the poetry that you picked, and and can maybe this was a I hope this was a launching off point. If poetry hasn't been you know a part of your regular reading schedule, something that's sort of in there daily, maybe it's something that you've got an inspiration for finding a place for it, you know, in your daily reading life. I think that I think that that's important. Yeah, always have a book of poetry that you're reading. I think it's um it's a good rhythm. God bless. Take care.